0: So I asked Dr. Henderson to present actually two cases that I think we can sort of contrast about where we're going to go with these data.
1: Sure. The first case is a 51-year-old African-American, previously healthy man, who eight months ago developed symptoms of a flu-like illness with some myalgias, low-grade fever. And after those symptoms sort of resolved, he was left with residual abdominal bloating, discomfort, and nausea and visited a local physician who obtained lab results and saw that he had very abnormal liver functions. His transaminases were two to three times normal. ALKFOS was elevated, bilirubin was normal. He was found on testing to be hepatitis B positive, never known of that before, had been in the military 30 years ago, had never had a history of acute hepatitis. A CT of abdomen was done, and he was found to have a very large mass in the left lobe of his liver measuring seven to eight centimeters and had three additional masses in the right lobe also had enlarged lymph nodes in the porta hepatis and celiac axis areas. So probably had extrahepatic disease. His gastroenterologist referred him to our liver group. We have, at our community hospital, two liver surgeons, cancer center trained, and we have a liver transplant program. His alpha-fetoprotein, when he first arrived at our place, was 13,983. He did have a biopsy done of one of the lesions, which showed a moderately differentiated hepatocellular carcinoma. There was no evidence of cirrhosis pathologically at least. I'm not sure they got enough normal liver tissue on the biopsy to be sure of that.
2: So David, what would you be thinking about with this patient at this point? The most important question was just answered. And in cases like this, if it's not clear, sometimes you can tell convincingly on a CT scan or an MRI, is there cirrhosis? But in cases where they're not, if you're contemplating resection, we'll often order a biopsy of the liver and a random biopsy of the background to see if there is normal liver. The CT may look normal, but you can still have evidence for early portal-to-portal fibrosis and bridging fibrosis as a precursor or well-on. The cirrhosis is not something that happens overnight. It can take years to develop, and it's a continuous spectrum. So at first description, with an eight-centimeter mass in the left lobe and three masses in the right lobe and higher lymphadenopathy, it's unlikely that he's going to be upfront surgical resection candidate if those three lesions in the right lobe were quite peripheral and there was no cirrhosis as the biopsy suggested, then he might be a resection candidate. The lymphadenopathy is an issue. And, if we're contemplating a resection, if there's a single lymph node in the hilum, that won't stop me or most aggressive liver surgeons from performing the resection because you can remove a lymph node. However, we want to avoid operating if there's widespread aortic or celiac axis lymphadenopathy because it's unlikely we're going to cure or prolong this patient's life. With the resection, we have the ability to sometimes go in and needle those, either by a percutaneous needle aspirate of lymph node or endoscopic ultrasound. is quite good now at getting needle aspirate from liver. But there'd be no reason to do that if the CT imaging shows... Can you
0: showed explain that endoscopic ultrasound? Endoscopic the ultrasound
2: the is the gastroenterologists go in. They're usually subspecialty trained. Last year, we did 1,500 EUS Biopsies, 60% of them were for liver or pancreatic diseases at our institute. They go in with a special endoscope that has an ultrasound built into the tip of it, and you can image right through the wall of the stomach or duodenum, see the pancreas. It's excellent for staging of pancreatic and hepatobiliary cancers because you can readily visualize and needle biopsy right through. It's an FNA needle biopsy going right into the lymph node with uh, pretty safe pattern. The incidence of major complications from this in a well trained hands is less than one percent. And it's safer than going in percutaneous where the needle may have to traverse colon or viscera or stomach as well as a vascular injury.
0: Taking everything into consideration though in this situation, what would you be thinking?
2: I would like to see the CT scans myself, but from the description the real issue here is he an operative candidate or not. If he's not an operative candidate based upon the Imaging, then I would start with chemoembolization into the liver, treating
1: the left side first since that has a dominant index lesion.
3: How big were these tumors?
1: One was seven by eight, which was his dominant lesion in the left lobe, took up most of the left lobe of the liver. He had three other lesions in three different segments in the right lobe, measuring about three to four centimeters each, and had three to four centimeter nodes in the hepatis and celiac axis region. Our surgeons felt, based on the multiple areas of involvement in the liver, that he wasn't a surgical candidate did refer him for chemoembolization. However, at arteriogram, he was found to have a very abnormal anatomy with two very small hepatic arteries, and they felt he wasn't a great candidate for that. I'm not sure the basis of how that decision was arrived at. Any comment on that? I think that
2: chemoembolization is not just cookbook. You order it. There's much art as well as the science of it. And there's a tremendous variability from the interventional radiologists. And this is something that would be worthwhile to get a second opinion. In a high-volume center, we do 500 chemoembolizations a year with HCC being the number one customer, cholangiocarcinoma and metastatic neuroendocrine cancer being the second and third most common indications.
0: So does this sound like something that perhaps if a group like yours looked at, maybe they'd feel differently? Yes.
2: Yes. The answer is yes, because the size of the artery isn't so important. It may be that there's a replaced right and left hepatic artery, which occurs anywhere from 10 to 20 percent of the time, depending upon the specific anatomy. But that is not a contraindication to chemoembolization.
0: What is your exact cocktail of chemoembolization?
2: There are different recipes. The two most effective drugs are intrahepatic adriamycin or cisplatinum. We typically will start with a single agent. Cisplatinum is drug of first choice, and if they don't respond after two or three cycles to cisplatinum, then we'll switch to adriamycin. And we give that in combination with chemoembolization, but again, we have three interventional radiologists that have been doing this for 10 to 20 years each, and there is a art to it. They'll initially give the embolization, and even in the embolization, there's different particles. You can use gel foam sponge, you can use PVA, or you can use embospheres. So there's at least three different products that are available. The goal is not to intentionally clot the artery because if you want to do that, it's very easy for them to put coils in. If you clot the entire left or right hepatic artery, then you lose your conduit for the next treatment. So we give microembolization out of little feeding peripheral vessels and we'll use a sandwich technique, a little bit of embolization to slow down the hepatic arterial blood flow. Then the chemotherapy agent delivered over 20 minutes followed by completion embolization with particles to try and choke off the small blood vessel supply. And we repeat that once every two months when we treat we treat only half the liver so we'll go out the left or right hepatic artery depending upon which lesion is dominant in this case we would start with the left hepatic artery give a few cycles and if that decreased then the right side started progressing then we would switch to the right side and treat that side
0: the patient were to say to you what's the benefit what am i going to gain by this am i going to live longer what do we know about the benefit here
2: the benefit is we're trying to prolong his life the response rates that we quote are 40 to 50% response rates. And response rate means either disease stabilization or slight decrease in tumor size and vascularity. It's important to inform the patient that this is not a curative treatment modality. Occasionally, we can downstage them, not a huge number, but I would say 5 to 10 percent of the time, especially in a non serotic liver like this, we can downstage them to the point the goal would be to reach a point where perhaps you could go in and resect or ablate all tumor. With this bulky lymphadenopathy, I think it's unlikely that this patient will come to a surgical treatment approach, but it's important to differentiate. The HCC that's unusual. I think the data shows that. 80 to 90% of HCC do not have early lymph node metastasis, which is just the opposite of pancreatic and bile duct cancer, where lymph node metastasis occurs commonly and early. HCC, majority of the patients, 80% present without clinical or radiographic lymphadenopathy.
0: Lewis, what do we know from randomized clinical trials in terms of how much the chemo is contributing here as opposed to just the embolization?
4: Yeah, well, there was a study by the Barcelona Group a number of years ago where they compared chemoembolization to bland embolization to no treatment. And what they found, it was one of these studies where, again, they had sort of a stopping point based on effectiveness on the therapy. And what they found was that chemoembolization crossed the point first that showed benefit to therapy and so they stopped the study and so what we know at this point is that chemoembolization is better than bland embolization or no therapy but we don't know how much better bland embolization might have been compared to no therapy but clearly since you can administer chemoembolization at the time of bland embolization that was the preferred modality. And I think that that's been the rationale for that really becoming the standard of care for intermediate stage disease.
0: Any other similar trials or that's it?
4: I think there was one other trial that was done in Hong Kong as well that basically showed the same result.
0: Alan, it kind of, in a way, it seems like kind of a weird therapy. You know, you put the microemboli in, and it it reminds me a little bit of hepatic arterial infusion of chemotherapy that you've done research on.
3: The first paper I wrote was on chemoembolization for liver cancer. That was a long time ago. What's the
0: theory about how it actually works?
3: Well, it's an antivascular therapy. It's just a poor man's bevacizumab, I guess. I mean, these are very vascular tumors, and I think the main impact is probably in choking off the vascular supply to the tumors. We wouldn't treat this patient with chemoembolization. I mean, if you look at the Lovett trial that Lewis just referred to, the Barcelona Group trial, did demonstrate a benefit. This patient would not have been in that trial. The bulky four lesions, one of which was seven centimeters in size, lymphadenopathy, so, as Lewis said, there are two studies I'm aware of that did show a survival advantage, and neither would a patient like this have been included. This is much more disease. The patient may, in fact, get benefit from the embolization, but we wouldn't treat the patient with chemoembolization that you just described. This is probably a good serafinib patient, you know, given the current landscape. But I think the role of chemoembolization is very difficult. As David said, there are Expert practitioners who know how to do it, the interventional radiologists who can do it with selective catheterization and minimal morbidity, and then there are interventional radiologists who do it with a lot of morbidity, and I think that's one of the concerns you have.
0: I want to follow up with what happened with this patient, but just first, Lewis to go back to you to the issue of etiology. What do we know about sort of the pathogenesis of how people develop HCC? This patient has hepatitis B as opposed to other etiologies such as hepatitis C.
4: That's an excellent question because he's really, in a sense, a classic case of someone who has hepatitis B, assuming that he has no cirrhosis. This is one of the key risk groups that's important to identify. Patients with chronic hepatitis B who have had hepatitis B for a substantial period of time, more than 30 years probably. Chronic hepatitis B is a DNA virus, and so it has the characteristic of being able to integrate into the host hepatocyte genome. And so consequently, we will have patients who do not get cirrhosis, which you know, we think of as a typical risk factor for development of hepatocellular carcinoma. So we'll have patients who don't have cirrhosis, but because of integration of the hepatitis virus into their genome and side effects of genomic instability, and perhaps also transcriptional effects from the X protein, which is a known transcriptional activator, effects from enhancers within the hepatitis B virus genome, there's a number of pathophysiologic and pathogenic effects of the B virus that can lead to the development of cancer in patients who do not have cirrhosis. So it's very important to identify those individuals with long-standing B infection and put them as well into surveillance programs.
0: I was really surprised. I think it was one of the slides in Dr. Lovett's presentation that said the most common cause of death in patients with cirrhosis now is HCC. Is that right?
4: That's right. And I think one of the things it reflects is the advances in management of patients with chronic liver disease. And so actually, I think for many patients with chronic liver disease, now able to bridge them to the point where they develop HCC. I think another factor is the availability of liver transplantation, because liver transplantation then is very effective treatment for end-stage liver disease, and so the patients then who otherwise for whom the cirrhosis would be the cause of death, that benefit from liver transplantation.
0: David, where are we right now in terms of weight for liver transplant,
2: and how do the HCC patients fit in? Currently in the United States, there are 17,500 patients on the wait list. There's between five and 6,000 organ donors per year with suitable livers. So if you say 6,000, 18,000, it's about a one in three chance per year. Patients go on a national wait list that's a point-scoring system called MELD, M-E-L-D, which stands for either Model for End-Stage Liver Disease or Mayo Clinic End-Stage Liver Disease because it was popularized and developed at the Mayo Clinic. It's a 6 to 40-point scale based upon three blood tests, the bilirubin, the INR, and the creatinine. When patients get sicker, the bilirubin goes up, the creatinine goes up, or the INR goes up, and they get more points. It's been an evolution over the last three years, but currently patients with stage 2 hepatoma, so it's one cancer up to 5 centimeters or three tumors with the largest being up to 3 centimeters in size, get 22 bonus points. So they would get 22 points on the scale.
0: So this is how the priority to give the this organs is correct. O- to Correct. And we
2: don't have a closet full of organs in reserve. If so, we could transplant more patients, but we ration the organs because they're a precious commodity. The stage 1 patients, which would be a a single tumor less than two centimeters. If you have a one centimeter marble, there's no rush. You don't have the urgency or priority. You can wait till it grows. They may sit there for a year before it grows to two centimeters in size. So we give the organs to the patients that are most likely to benefit, meaning the stage twos, one up to five or three less than three. So a stage one patient generally is not going to get a liver. Stage one patient will not get the bonus point. They can still go on the score. They may only have a MELD score of 10 or 12 points and not be near the top of a list or even single digit MELD score, but they have the ability to wait. We watch them every three months with a CT scan, and if they grow or progress, usually we don't lose their window of opportunity, the stage threes and fours, a single tumor eight centimeters in size or multiple four tumors is the patient that dr henderson presented this patient would be a stage three tumor and would then be beyond the meld criteria you can still list them with your own philosophy at your center but they cannot get the meld upgrade which in essence means they're never going to get the liver
0: how do you decide between transplant and resection
2: That's an excellent question that's been looked at in three continents, in Asia, Europe, and the United States. And you have to individualize based upon your geographic locale. Ultimately, for someone with cirrhosis, I believe the best treatment is liver transplant because you're removing the HCC cancer and the precancer cancer condition, which is the entire cirrhotic liver. But if the patients don't have a live donor who can give half their liver, whether it's a relative or altruistic friend, and if they don't have the ability to get a cadaver transplant... And there are child A, then resection may be their best option. Childs B and C cirrhotics do not tolerate major hepatic resections because they don't have enough hepatic reserve and they can decompensate and go into acute on chronic liver failure and never leave the hospital. So, in general, major resections are reserved to child A patients with not a lot of portal hypertension.
0: So I guess actually going back to Bill's case with no underlying liver disease, then the treatment of choice is resection.
2: Absolutely. In a non liver, hands down, the treatment is resection.
0: And can you talk a little bit about your experience with laparoscopic surgery and how widely available
2: that is? Yes. Laparoscopic liver surgery is now, it's one of the last organs that have been tackled laparoscopically in the abdominal cavity in part because of the risk of bleeding or difficulties in hemostasis and slicing through the liver and just the maneuverability. But we've gotten better. And I started our laparoscopic liver program approximately five years ago in Pittsburgh, and now we've performed almost 200 cases. 50% of them have been for cancers. Now we have the ability to even perform a laparoscopic right hemihepatectomy or hepatic lobectomy. Patients need to be selected very carefully. So in the setting of HCC and cirrhosis, Small tumors near the periphery of the liver, in the left lateral segment or in the anterior right segment, segments five and six on the right or two and three on the left, that have a one to two centimeter tumor at the edge of the liver, they're ideal for laparoscopic resection because the patients do better. You don't interrupt the collaterals that the liver has formed, the recanalized umbilical vein, and there's a less incidence of decompensation. In non-serotic livers for metastatic colorectal cancer would be the most common cancer indication or in women with benign liver lesions, symptomatic adenomas or FNH lesions or even hemangiomas that are symptomatic, removing them laparoscopically is an ideal approach. Typically, the patients only spend two to three days in the hospital, so the length of stay is half. They have much less pain and morbidity and well-tolerated. We tell the patients, you're getting the same operation. We're cutting in the same location. It's just a matter of having a big open incision or three or four small Band-Aid size incisions. I think we're seeing it's not readily available in the United States. There's three or four centers that have performed more than 100 of these cases each, and we're slowly seeing growth in that. The surgeons need expertise in two disciplines, one in hepatic resection surgery and the other in minimally invasive laparoscopic
1: surgery, and you have to combine both of them. This man is African-American, and is his genetic background important in terms of his disease itself. I've heard that Africans or African-Americans have a slightly worse prognosis of hepatocellular carcinoma. Is that because of socioeconomic factors or late diagnosis, or is there some genetic basis for that? Louis?
4: I think there's an important distinction between Africans and African-Americans. People born in Africa who have chronic hepatitis B have typically acquired it before the age of five. It's an interesting distinction there between Africans and Asians because people born in Asia who acquire chronic hepatitis B typically have acquired it through vertical transmission at the time or close to the time of birth. People born in Africa typically are born HBV-negative but it will acquire HBV during the first five years after birth. There's interesting epidemiology there. But then subsequently, people born in Africa appear to acquire their risk of HCC earlier. So the current recommendation is that if there's someone born in Africa who presumably got chronic hepatitis B early in life, you should begin their surveillance, even if they do not have cirrhosis, at about the age of 20 for Asians, you should begin their surveillance for men at the age of 40 and for women at the age of 50. That's people born in Asia who acquired it early. On the other hand, for a person that was born in the United States that presumably acquired his hepatitis B perhaps in the military, maybe from a blood transfusion many years ago, but you know he's had probably the same 30 years necessary on average to acquire substantial risk for HCC. That individual, I think, I would suspect is at no increased risk of a worse outcome compared to a Caucasian individual. I don't think we have good data, all things being equal, that there's a statistically worse outcome. That was very elegant, and I think that
3: summarizes it beautifully. I think... There is a cofactor for HCC in Africa, which is aflatoxin exposure, which clearly makes for a very much poorer prognosis. But I agree, I'm not aware of any data other than the generic sociodemographic data that African Americans don't do as well with most cancers, and I think that may be patterns of care more so than any genetic predisposition.
1: I guess a corollary to that question was the results of the Sharp trial is that applicable to Orientals and African Americans since the trial was done almost exclusively in Caucasian Europeans?
3: Right, That's a very important question, and the answer is, in the absence of data, otherwise I would assume that it is applicable. But clearly pharmacogenomics, I think toxicity, the toxicities we've seen on serafinib in our patients, all but one are Asian patients. And it may be that the pharmacogenomics and the metabolic handling of a drug like triaffinib may be dramatically different across different ethnic groups. And that's one of the breakdowns that there are not many Asians treated on the SHARP trial.
0: That's interesting. So, these patients that you were talking about before that you've treated where you've seen more toxicity were mainly Asians?
3: We're all but one. We're Asian. Really? That reflects the demographics of where I live. So, what percent
0: of your overall patient population well, is Asian?
3: Remember, in the San Francisco Bay Area, probably a third of patients are Asian or part Asian. And our percentage of patients with HCC is probably 50% of our patients with HCC are Asian.
0: Now, another issue about serafinib is there is a trial, and this was mentioned in the discussion there by Dr. Johnson, out there looking at doxorubicin plus serafinib, and I think it's going to be presented this fall at ECHO. Alan, what do we know about that study?
3: What we know publicly is that it was also closed early at an interim analysis because of superiority in the combination arm versus a doxorubicin alone. Of course, the same caveats hold with any study that's closed early. Is it because the control arm did very poorly or the experimental arm did very well? But based on what's public, it's fair to conclude that you can combine serafinib with chemotherapy. Now, I would argue that because doxorubicin has a bad name amongst hepatologists, so you look at Brewey or Lovett, the group that led the SHARP trial, They think doxorubicin is poison, and they absolutely would never consider it. But these results may very well argue for serafinib doxorubicin appearing better. Now, again, studies are different. You have to be cautious about cross-study comparisons. But it certainly speaks to the combinability of the drug, and it may confuse the issue of what is the optimal treatment. I
0: was bringing that up because of Dr. Henderson's question in terms of the patient population. What was the patient population in that study, the doxerucin and serafinib study? Right, so that
3: was largely not done in Europe. It was a Canadian and American study with some European centers the major distinction was that there's many centers that wouldn't consider doxorubicin under any circumstance and other centers that wouldn't consider a placebo arm under any circumstance. They don't agree, but they're both right. Although I've seen the data, so I have to be careful about what I say and what I don't say. The patients are more representative of the patients we see in this country. It was a Canadian study and Memorial was a major participant, Memorial Sloan Kettering. And it was less of the Olympic athletes, so I think there were more Child's B. Although still rigorous criteria, to use doxorubicin, you need to have pretty good liver function.
0: What was the dose and schedule? Was the adriamycin dose adjusted based on the liver function?
3: Right, it was, although you needed normal liver function to get in the study in the first place. The dose was serafinib 400, the same dose of continuous serafinib and 60 per meter squared of dox every three weeks. Again, the results will be presented at the Barcelona meetings. The results are eye-opening. The res- results are astonishing. It's a doubling of survival with serafinib dox versus dox alone, And the doxalone group doesn't do quite as well as the control arm in the SHARP trial, but you wouldn't expect them to because they had a poor prognosis in general. I believe if this was azarubarb and serafinib rather than doxorubicin and serafinib, it would be catapulted to be a new standard. Now, and that's because doxorubicin has such a bad name in the field, people are going to wonder about the validity of the results. Now, to be careful, this is a randomized phase 2 study, 50 patients on each arm. So you have to be very cautious about over-interpreting it. I think it is a strong hypothesis generating trial rather than, you know, the SHARP trial was a 300 per arm randomized phase 3. I call that definitive. This docs seraphim trial is a smaller hypothesis-generating trial, but the results, to me, are just unbelievable.
0: But I mean in terms of what's going on there when you look at these results any way to guess how much is the doxorubicin
3: Well, how to say there? I mean, if these results would argue for some interaction between serafinib and doxorubicin I'm careful not to use synergy because that really means something very specific but some favorable interaction it's if in a bigger study this held up it would be hard not to see some interaction that was favorable and none this was not based on preclinical data. This is a study, frankly, a study design that was sort of not supported by a lot of people because it really didn't make scientific sense, but it may very well be that they struck gold.
0: So at this instant, is there a clinical situation where you consider using Dr. Urbicin plus sorafenib? Yes. What would that be?
3: Well, again, I've seen the data, and in the fit patient, child's PUA, excellent liver function, That's a patient, based on my seeing that data, where I would offer it as an option. It's more toxic than serafinib alone, for sure, and I think you have to be cautious. And I would really, again, add a randomized phase two is more hypothesis-generating than it is definitive. This won't be on the label, for example, with the FDA review.
0: Do you see a phase three coming down the line?
3: Right. So in the cooperative groups in the U.S., there's a collaborative effort to develop the next sort of round of studies. And I think the approach that's going to be taken in the U.S. will be a series of randomized phase two studies with the same eligibility criteria across these studies exploring different combinations, probably one or two serafinib alone arms, just to see if in the patients with hepatitis more reflective of the patients seen in the U.S. if the results are comparable, as well as serafinib with other biologics or perhaps serafinib docs, perhaps bevacizumab, perhaps sunitinib. There are a variety of contenders here. And then pick a putative winner, from those randomized phase 2s and probably then take it into comparison versus serafinib.
0: But, I mean, do you see a phase 3 looking at the same issue here of serafinib plus doc Well, so that's
3: a good question. I think that's one way you could go, and that may be an industry-sponsored study, and it's a very reasonable study. I think because you'll have a lot more toxicity with serafinib docs than you do with serafinib, and because it may be that biological agents will get you as much value as chemotherapy My view is that I'd rather in parallel, so I could see doing a randomized study, serafinib docs versus serafinib, I think the data is strong enough to justify that. I would be more interested in looking at a biologic combination that may have appreciably less toxicity to compare to serafinib. But I think in parallel, both questions could be asked. The dox alone arm did about like the placebo arm. So what I would do is take the putative winners of each of these randomized studies and compare one to one. So I would do a serafinib versus serafinib dox.
0: And would you be comfortable putting a patient Absolutely.
3: On? For the field, I'd rather try to move the field forward by looking at other biological agents. To me an mTOR inhibitor, RAD-001 plus serafinib, we're very keen to do something like that. Or lotnib, EGFR appears to be an important target in HCC. So I think the cooperative groups, we'd rather come up with maybe even a better arm, less toxic. But I think a serafinib versus serafinib doc study would be very valid and worth doing.
1: The other question has very basic, what is the necessity of doing a biopsy in patients who have an alpha protein that's very sky-high like this patient, 13,000, and has hepatitis positivity and has obvious evidence of HCC. Do you need a biopsy? One of the reasons I ask is my patient, who we may not discuss, I lost because I recommended a biopsy. A 42-year-old Nigerian immigrant, hepatitis B positive, had a 14-centimeter dominant mass in the right lobe of his liver, had 4-6-centimeter to mediastinal and hilar nodes. And I wished to get a biopsy in part because I wanted to make sure he didn't have an extra gonadal germ cell tumor. No evidence of a testicular mass, but in a situation other than that, what is the importance of a biopsy given the other clinical data? For the liver transplant setting, a biopsy is not required, and biopsies
2: carry risk of bleeding or cancer seeding. The risk is small, probably in the order of 1%, but certainly if they have cirrhosis and meet the eligibility criteria from radiologic imaging or an elevated alpha fetal protein, they do not require biopsy. On the other hand, if it's an inoperable candidate and we're considering chemoembolization, it's my preference to get a biopsy to confirm the tumor before subjecting someone to treatment. These treatments, whether systemic or liver-directed therapies, all have morbidity and toxic side effects, and we want to have one documentation of the tumor.
4: I think that's a very important point for the patients, specifically with advanced disease, because there are a number of other metastatic types of disease that will masquerade as an HCC, some of them with elevated alpha proteins. So you suffer GL cancers and gastric cancers with high alpha-fetoproteins. And proteins, neuroendocrine cancers. Neuroendocrine cancers. And then you'll see the other tumors that behave very much like cancer. So you'll see a mass in the liver that's migrating into the portal vein. Just saw one going up the hepatic artery into the right atrium that tend now to be metastatic small bowel adenocarcinomas. So lymphomas. I think that's a very important point.
3: Uh, I agree entirely. I think the one issue with your patient where I would have agreed with a biopsy is the mediastinal adenopathy. I think to me a dominant space occupying lesion AFP of 40,000 hepatitis B in a Vietnamese immigrant I probably would treat that patient without a biopsy but mediastinal nodes you know anything the least bit atypical I would
1: totally agree on a biopsy. Do you want to follow up on your patient. Yes, He presented to me then after being rejected from transplant or chemoblization. And I was aware of data with serafinib from the phase two study that Abu Alfa had published in JCO last year. And from the press release about the SHARP data, this was about a month prior to ASCO, I saw this gentleman. But we have an active clinical research program, and I still think doing clinical research trials is important despite data being out there. So I offered him the choice of either taking serafinib, which I thought was a standard of care, or going on to a phase two trial we're doing of a very small organic arsenical drug we're doing with 600 centers, including the University of Miami, is participating in that trial. And he elected to go on the trial pretty much with the rationale that if this didn't work, we got a second line treatment to go to. If we did serafinib first, we don't have a lot of other established options. So he has gone on to that trial, which is a drug called ZIO-101 from a small biotech company called Zioform in Boston. And he's had stable disease for about four months with a reduction of his alpha-fetoprotein.
0: What do we know about arsenicals in HCC?
1: We'll find out. What's the rationale to even look at it? They've got some rationale. I'm not totally sure I can quote. it. It's you. a
3: disease in need of a treatment. Is enough rationale? Yeah, it's an interesting question. We have a phase two with a drug pisopinib, which is a multi-targeted inhibitor, clearly works in kidney cancer, for example. And we're struggling with the sort of ethical question of can you still treat patients up front with pisopinib when serafinib's available? I think you can ethically as long as you explain to patients that there's this other option. But finally, you know, you have to worry about this in HCC, which is there is a standard that may prompt earlier usage.
1: There's no capability to doing placebo control trials now, I don't imagine.
3: Well, I don't think so. I agree. I think that with this data from serafinib, it would be tough to do a placebo-controlled trial, and I think that's changed, absolutely.